0: Hi everybody, welcome back to What's a Crime with Grania and Gemma. So for today's episode, this story is often referred to as the last call killer or the last call murderer. Have you heard of this before? No, I don't think I have actually. So it's what it's happened in the US in the 90s. Uh, On the 5th of May, 1991, on a warm Sunday afternoon at around three o'clock, a turnpike maintenance worker was emptying barrels um, at a rest center in Lancaster County in Pennsylvania, USA. So he was looking for like, you know, aluminium cans to sort um, when he pulled on a plastic bag, but he couldn't lift it. So he's like annoyed he kind of roots around for a stick and he opens the bag but he kind of tears it open but there's another one underneath that one again same thing he rips through that one and the same thing again and again and when he finally got to the last plastic bag that he tore open there was like eight in total he couldn't really make out what it was he kind of looked at it and he's like is this some food of some sort but then he sees freckles Realising that it's something sinister, he grabs his radio and calls his supervisors who notified the Pennsylvania State Police. The sight was gruesome. It was an emaciated man who, in addition to chest and back wounds, had his penis shoved into his mouth. Oh, my God. So, you know, the, the police are like, okay, this is some sort of deliberate attack the body showed no signs of decomposition which meant it hadn't been there long so this uh, person was clean shaven wearing a suit a pen in the breast pocket the precise cause of death and the man's identity was a mystery he didn't have any personal possessions five foot four barely a hundred points in several areas there was post-mortem settling of blood which suggested that the body had been moved a few times and a lack of rigidity meant that the death didn't occur more than uh, 36 hours prior to discovery. There were bruises on the scalp all indicating um, that they were fresh and the abdomen suffered the most severe trauma with wounds um, made by something sharp, sharp presumably a knife. The severed penis wound showed only a small amount of hemorrhaging, meaning thankfully that it was an after-death injury. So meanwhile, the um, state's police fingerprint examiner was given the eight rubbish bags and he developed fingerprints and three-palm prints and they were put into the state's database but there was no matches. Uh state police placed posters with a composite sketch of this John Doe, this person, and the image did look familiar to members of the first to a member of the first trip Philadelphia City Cavalry, which was a National Guard unit. And their suspicions were soon confirmed when dental records showed that the body belonged to Peter Anderson, aged 54 of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Peter was born in 1937, Milwaukee, Wisconsin. He attended Trinity College, obviously not Dublin, which we assume Trinity College, uh, in Connecticut. He spent a lot of his life in the closet. Like in those days, being an openly gay man was very dangerous, like it made for a very difficult life, almost impossible life. As a gay man, friends would disown you. It was difficult to secure employment or even risk being fired if anybody did find out you were gay at your job. Being assaulted by strangers for being who you were. You know, even familial relationships like um, parents disowned children. People had problems with the law. There was actually even a state law in 1923 when it was a criminal act for a man to even ask another man for sex. So New York City police in the 1930s sent the, like really good looking police officers into um, gay bars undercover. And if anyone even suggested to like leave the bar, even just to go somewhere like more quiet, more intimate, they would arrest them. That is absolutely crazy. It's crazy. Think that it was, like it's not that long ago. It's not that long ago. It, it is scary that that was real Jesus. they didn't trap like thousands of men in this fashion until the 1960s when obviously it was um outlawed so this led this man to marry a woman he actually got married twice and he also had a second or he also had a Sunday second wife they were separated at the time of his death like she kind of knew about his other you know his activities He was described by friends that knew him as a likable person, but with a deep sadness. Probably not. Obviously, he's going to have a deep sadness. He can't be his true self. He drank a lot and he was considered by many a, quote, functioning alcoholic. Uh, it was discovered that on the night of his last known whereabouts, which was May 3rd, he and a friend had driven to New York to attend a fundraising dinner. And after the dinner, Peter and his friends attended a bar on East 58th called the Town House. So he had like too much to drink and they were asked to leave. His friends booked him a room in a hotel and put him into a taxi. Peter did arrive at the hotel and the security supervisor helped him out of the taxi and walked him to the front desk, but for whatever reason, he didn't check in. No one really knows why or what he did next, but his friends kind of came to the assumption that he just simply forgot that he had been cut off at the townhouse and he kind of returned to, you know, get another round. His friends both had alibis and the investigation came to a bit of a standstill that was until later in 1992 when the trippers were contacted by New Jersey State Police. They were investigating a murder. The New Jersey police had discovered a very similar murder where their victim had been stuffed in garbage bags. He was last seen at the townhouse in New York in the days before his death. On July 10th, 1992, this is a year later, um, when this murder that I was just talking about was discovered it was a warm sunny day and two employees of the New Jersey Department of Transportation were on the day shift they moved a dump truck through um, Southampton about two hours south of Manhattan and they were picking up um, you know bins and putting them into the truck and as they drove further down onto route 72 one of them just sort of sensed that something wasn't right when one of the bags again felt heavy Then the men noticed that a couple of the bags were leaking blood. So that wasn't super out of the ordinary because it was a popular spot for fishing and they kind of assumed that it might have been like dead fish left in bags. But then one of the men, like I said, had kind of an uneasy feeling and he's like, let's just check this out. And what they found did lead them to call the police. Police arrived on the scene and the rubbish bags were inspected. The first bag contained a head. A mop of grey hair. The vocal cords had been cut out. Wow, the second bag held a set of arms dismembered at the shoulder joint. A third bag contained eviscerated intestines, but also a blood-stained striped shower curtain, surgical gloves, and a king-size fitted bedsheet and a saw. The fourth and fifth uh, contained other body parts and in addition to these body parts, detectives found a briefcase and a wallet. The medical examiner on inspecting the body parts found a bite mark and a series of wounds, all stab wounds. Based on the bruising, all had occurred whilst the victim was still alive, but the dismemberment occurred after death. She noticed that the arms had been fully disarticulated rather than like, cut so she felt like whoever did this had a strong sense for anatomy as in like they were cut at the joint rather than like try to saw through bone if you know what i mean so they knew what they were doing yeah in a sense that she's like they they have some sort of sense of anatomy so there were ligature marks caused by a rope around the wrist and this too occurred while the man was still alive a week later a toxicology screen um, would record his blood alcohol level way above the legal limit. The wallet would indicate that the identity of this um, these remains were uh, Thomas Mulcahy of Sudbury, Massachusetts. So wherever this man had been killed, it wasn't here at the rest stop where his remains were found. That was the secondary crime scene. So the bed sheet and the, cou- the shower curtain that they'd found Indicated that this could have been like someone's home, a hotel room, um, like a rented property. And the body and all of the rubbish bags had been washed prior to being dumped. So investigators also chillingly believed that the perpetrator had probably done this before. Uh, Margaret Mulcahy was nervous because her husband of three decades still had not returned home. Her husband, Tom, had been on a business trip in Manhattan and was due home. She did eventually report Tom missing, but it wasn't long before she discovered the awful fate of her husband. She learned that he had been murdered and left at the the side of a highway. So Tom was married and had four children. He was an employee of a computer company. He was a good father. He was a professional success. He got along with all his neighbors and his co-workers investigators also learned that when tom took business trips he added on an extra day to give himself time to visit the gay bars and clubs so this didn't come as a big surprise to his wife margaret she discovered this years earlier because she'd find like a a gay bar pamphlet in one of his pockets but obviously like he was her husband they were probably friends best friends and um you know they still loved each other So she flew to meet the New Jersey detectives to give them the names of some of his associates and the police were able to track some of his movements, thanks in part to um, his friends and co-workers and also his uh, credit card transactions which the last one had been at an ATM at 11.15pm, two nights before his body was found. So his friend told him that after uh, their work, they went to a, a bar and grill for lunch and got drunk. He then went home, but Tom moved on to another bar. So detectives found a man called Douglas Gibson, who had been speaking to Tom in a bar called The Townhouse that night. So he was this guy was like a townhouse regular since it opened in 1989. And this guy, um, Douglas Gibson, said that they talked for a little bit. He said he was attracted to Tom. But as their conversation progressed, he noticed Tom kind of like glancing over his shoulder to another man. So this uh, Douglas, he knew this man to see, but he never spoke to him. Um, and he knew Tom kind of like this other guy because he excused himself and he's like, Look, this is my only night in New York. Like, obviously, he wanted to spend it with someone that he, you know, fancied. And Douglas was disappointed, saying very sassily, You're not going to find anything better than me. So go right ahead. You go, Douglas. <laughs> uh, two days later, one detectives knocked on his door, um, he was like the last person to be kind of seen with Tom. He was a prime suspect. But what saved him, he assumed, was that the bartenders could attest to his presence long after Tom left, right up until closing time. Also, he didn't have a car, so he couldn't have drove out to the rest stop that the uh, body was discovered. Um. So after the murder, he did recall, like, his initial sort of connection with Tom. And he's like, you know, why didn't I fight a bit harder? Like, why didn't I keep him talking longer? But obviously, like, sure, he wasn't to know, like, you're not going to think, no this guy's going to end up murdered survivor's guilt yeah uh the man who uh thomas had been last spotted talking to was white he had brown hair and a composite sketch was administered to the media so on july 16th uh the investigations in full swing the mulcahy's held the funeral and hundreds of um, family and friends filled the church Detectives couldn't establish a primary crime scene. They couldn't establish a suspect or a motive. They weren't really able to get fingerprints off of the bags that the remains had been dumped in. They did however manage to extract DNA from a latex glove. So they entered it into the system but it gave them nothing. They did learn something important. So the plastic like wrapper bag that contained the gloves had an SKU number that they were able to trace back um, that had been purchased in the only CVS branch on Staten Island so also the saw that they found there was a sticker on that which was traced to um, a, a chain of home improvement shops there was 32 of them in New York and two were on Staten Island and one was across the street from the CVS that the latex gloves had been purchased at. So the police are like, okay, there's a possibility that the perpetrator either lives or works on Staten Island. The only problem being that nearly half a million people live on Staten Island. Yeah. So detectives search for any similar crimes and that's when they discover the homicide the year before that struck them as similar. Because like Tom, Peter Anderson had spent his last night on earth in the House bar. Okay, so I'm just going to briefly interrupt this episode because we just want to say a very quick thank you to our sponsor for Season 3, the Muff Liquor Company. So before you start sniggering, (laughs) Muff is actually a village in Donegal and they have a liquor company. So get your head out of the gutter. (laughs) The Muff Liquor Company is an award-winning premium handcrafted Irish spirit company. You can purchase six times distilled handcrafted Irish gin whiskey and vodka and I mean we have personally tasted <laughs> all of the above numerous times <laughs> so we can say firsthand that they are definitely the best but don't just take our word for it you can order online at themuffliquorcompany.com. Hi what can I get you? Hi uh, can I get two sparkling waters and two uh ma- ma- margaritas? No uh Two mo mojitos. No, sorry. Uh, just two mo. Moscow mules. Having trouble asking for our famous vodka and gin by name. No problem, because now you can buy your favourite Muff liquor online. Fancy enjoying a bit of Muff at home? Order now at themuffliquorcompany.com and use discount code What's the Crime for 10% off. The Muff Liquor Company. Come for the name, stay for the taste. Over 18s. Drink responsibly. Visit drinkaware.ie So please do let us know if you enjoy a nice gin and tonic or a nice hot whiskey. listening to the next episode of What's the Crime. So one year after Thomas's remains were found, on the 10th of May in 1993 at half seven in the morning, a man called Donald Jefferson was waiting um, at Wranglebrook Road in New Jersey for a friend. So he decided to drive a mile up the road toward a forest because he'd heard there was a blimp flying nearby in the area and he wanted to see it. What's a blimp? It's like those big round things. Do you know what I mean? They're like big... (laughs) <laughs> a ufo no they're like big air balloon things right okay and that's really not a good explanation people are going to listen and be like <laughs> they <laughs> right, don't know carry on. something. Was the so as he made his way up the road he passed what he thought was a deer carcass so it wouldn't have been that strange again because it was kind of known for like a dumping ground um hunting and stuff but on the way back down disappointed he didn't see the blimp he rolled down his window and that's when he passed the what he thought was a deer carcass and he saw human fingers and immediately he felt nauseous. He drove the mile home and called the police. Within 30 minutes detectives were on the scene. There was a left arm bloodied and dirty on the road and the hand appeared to have a plastic bag in its grip. So they thought that perhaps an animal had actually rooted through the bags and pulled the arm out of the bag there were six bags all containing human remains the body was divided into seven parts the dismemberment and dumping of the remains in these rubbish bags eerily similar to thomas mulcahy there were multiple stab wounds in his back and obvious ligature marks around his ankles This man had no driver's license, no business card and nothing by which to immediately identify him and a crime scene investigator examined the arms and took fingerprint impressions. The body seemed to have been washed and he noted that there was very little blood in the bags. He snapped photos of a few tattoos. On the right hand uh, between the index finger and the thumb was inked the word Linda and on the left foot was the words Fast Eddie. The fingerprints were sent to the FBI and that evening a match was made to a man named Eddie Ramos. So this is the actual victim's um, fingerprints. So this meant that he had an arrest record. In a mugshot taken in 1990 the man had thick dark hair and a dense mustache. The um Man was known as Eddie Ramos, was actually known in Philadelphia by another name, Anthony Edward Marrero. So he was in New York known as Eddie Ramos, and then in Philadelphia by the other name. So there was some sort of initial confusion about Anthony and about where he lived and if he was a resident of either Philadelphia or New York. Officers knew sort of very little about his life because no one had filed a police report that he was missing, and no one had come forward since the discovery of the body to say that they knew him. They learned that he was a sex worker with over um over a decade had accumulated a record of loitering and solicitation. So the tip actually came in from one of his friends, um, one of his pals called Carlos Santiago. He told detectives that Anthony's sort of territory, like where he worked, was basic bars, which he has said attracted, quote, blue collar business types, unquote, that were interested in being picked up. So He said that they had been friends for about six years and Anthony had no sort of fixed abode, often staying in Carlos's house as a house guest. And on the 5th of May, 1993, when he was staying in his house, Anthony told him that he was going to the village for work. But three days later, when Carlos was celebrating his 26th birthday, Anthony, who was invited, didn't show up and he just never seen him again. So that's when they're thinking that this man must have been like murder yeah a few days after Anthony's body was found a New Jersey assistant medical director performed the autopsy so she estimated that he had been killed three to five days prior to the discovery so police believe that due to the way the body was dismembered again cut through a joint rather than the bone that whoever had killed Anthony was not a novice so they're thinking perhaps he's in like the medical field maybe he's a surgeon Or even like a butcher or something. Just someone that had the knowledge to do that. The bag that contained the head was an Acme bag from the supermarket chain. So on it were the words President's Choice and made with pride by Bob H. and Jerry H. So police were able to track the origins of the Acme bag, which contained the head, because when they contacted the supermarket chain, the security told them that as a promotional tool, that the people who made each bag branded them with their initials. So therefore, Acme, the supermarket chain, could say for definite where this bag was distributed, um, Pennsylvania, New York, New Jersey but one location stuck out to them Staten Island, New York So Staten Island, New York is starting to look like a hotspot for all of these sort of bags the, you know, where the equipment Yeah, so they're looking like it's a cereal cereal colour Well, just two months after Anthony Marrero's death on the 29th of July, 1993 It had been a slow sort of Thursday night at the Five Oaks Bar in Greenwich Village, New York. Lisa Hall was a bartender and at around 1am she was greeted by a regular. This guy, well over 6 feet, 200 pounds, big guy, 56 year old Michael Sakara. So this guy visited Five Oaks every single night apart from Mondays. And he would order round upon round of scotch. They, like, you know, he was one of those regulars that like the last stool of the bar was his, you know. um, He had his place there, like. Yes so at at this still he could sort of face the street and see everyone coming up and down the steps just one of these people that it was like they're just a big part of their life yeah like yeah part of their routine exactly. So shortly before last call, a man entered the bar and sat down to Michael's immediate left and got a drink. He was white, around five foot nine, average build, wore a blue button down shirt with the sleeves rolled up. So Lisa, the bartender, she guessed he's like in his early 30s. He had thick, wavy hair. She assumes Michael knew him because he sat down right next to him. There was empty seats around, like you're not going to sit right next to somebody if you don't know them. If you do, don't be that annoying person. I hate him. <laughs> if there's free seats somewhere you know if you get on a bus or, a or a bus and like this episode I'm like hello there's free seats <laughs> anyway and also he introduces him so he's like um you know this is so and so to lisa he says this is mark the nurse um and he works at saint vincent's hospital and then the men kind of just chat quietly amongst themselves lisa didn't see them leave together but she kind of couldn't be sure just after 4am, the bartenders collected their tips and got um, a taxi home leaving the Five Oaks. Barely a day later, at 7am, on July 31st, a man collecting bottles and cans found a briefcase and a bag holding shoes, pants, a shirt and a, and a wallet identifying the belongings as... Um, the owner as Michael Sakara of Manhattan. Oh my God, so that's Michael the regular at the bar. So the man... He kind of considers keeping these belongings but he has like an eerie feeling and he left the discoveries at a police station. A few hours after this another man parked his truck at a guardrail on a highway and the man was collecting rubbish barrels. On opening a green plastic bag that was tightly knotted staring up at him was a face. When police arrived on the scene, an officer donned gloves, opened the bag and he, like the man that made the discovery, felt ill. It was clear to the police that um, the body parts had not been there long. The detectives also realised that the crime scene had to have been elsewhere because there was no signs of a struggle, no blood on or outside the, the rubbish barrel. A sergeant matched the photo found on the I.D. earlier that day to the face that they'd found in the bag. So other officers went to the victim's apartment in West End Avenue. Michael Sakara, the regular at the Five Oaks Bar. And when they went to his apartment, they established that that also was not a crime scene. So they started to knock on neighbors' doors to interview them. Until seven months ago, Michael had lived with another man. It was common knowledge that they were a couple. Friends described him as the life of the party. His ex-partner, whom they'd been together for nine years, and they broke up only seven months before Michael died. Oh, my God. Um, He spoke to the Daily Mail, uh, or sorry, the Daily News, and he informed them that he believed Michael would likely have known the killer because he was very cautious and he wouldn't have gone home with someone that he had just met. So when autopsy was carried out on the body parts that had been discovered which was the severed head and the arms. The medical examiner um, discovered that the arms were cut through the humerus joint and uh, there wasn't a lot of bruising suggesting that Michael had been already passed away when the arms were removed. So a task force was soon established. Similarities of the um. The cases like the dismemberment, the rubbish bags, even the way that the bags were knotted, like the way they were tied, were all noted the task force was made up of more than two dozen investigators. So they kind of had some like little minor disagreements over which cases to include as being linked. So one faction saw Mulcahy and Sicara as like the connective thread, like two um, men from white collar professions disposed of in the same manner, but were a little bit more sceptical about Anthony Marrero. He was a sex worker and the physical evidence also different differed the bags containing the body parts were not left in a rubbish barrel so that's how that kind of differed differed from the other cases but others were adamant that it was connected to the rest of the victims one of the detectives quoted just because he wasn't a married hidden homosexual with a great job he was murdered dismembered and discarded almost identical to the others a second larger block of investigators asked to ins- exclude the 1991 murder of Peter Anderson. So although um, his penis had been severed, unlike the rest, he suffered no further dismemberment. The task force was up and running on August 4th so they're like sure they're going to catch their killer soon. They had witnesses, physical evidence and a newly minute by minute timeline of Michael's day before he went missing. Michael being the regular of the Five Oaks Bar. Almost immediately, investigators found a witness, Eugene Williams, who was a homeless man. He had seen Michael wearing a black T-shirt and carrying a briefcase under his arm in the company of a man leaving the Five Oaks bar that night. So this was that they assumed the very man whom Lisa Hall, who was the bartender, described to investigators a few days earlier. She said he was the nurse that worked in St. Vincent. So she said his name was like Mark or John or something very sort of you know common, like common yeah. yeah. The witness told the New Jersey State Police that at around 4am out walked Michael and a companion. The man was 30 to 40 years old, between 5 foot 10 and 6 foot tall, clean shaven with blonde hair. He said the pair got in the man's car and drove away. Two days later, a second man, Robert Smith, gave investigators another account of the events. Early that morning, he and a few acquaintances were in front of the Five Oaks, so they kind of had a routine of waiting for the... Um, bartenders after um, their shift because they often gave homeless people money so Michael and a man exited the bar he said that he recalled the man as slim in his 40s six foot tall with blonde or light brown hair it seemed that the man was not much of a talker and much more sober than Michael the pair got into a sky blue compact with New York license plates parked in front of the bar and left So the police have, like, no reason to believe that these men would lie and that they just wanted to help. Yeah, like, they've nothing to gain if they are, like, from this. Yeah. The next evening, on the 8th of August, a volunteer fireman was riding a motorcycle nine miles north of where Michael's um, remains had been found. He stopped at a pull-off and smelled something foul. He, um peered over a cable guard um, rail and saw four green plastic rubbish bags left in one he saw the outline of a human leg against the plastic he had found the rest of Michael Sakara's remains oh my god so up until now, stories about the murders had largely been relegated to, like, small hometown newspapers. After Peter and Tom were killed, their hometown publications, including the Philadelphia Inquirer and the Boston Globe, wrote um, about them in detail. Anthony's death was kind of ignored at first by the New York media and had been the subject of only a few short articles in the Inquirer, um the Asbury Park Press and the Courier Post. So it's believed that there wasn't a lot of press regarding Anthony's death because he was a sex worker. Then in August 1993, the day that Michael's last remains were found, the most high-profile story on the case was published. It was the front page of the New York Times and Metro section and the feature introduced the city to the four murdered men. The media dubbed the killer the last call killer due to the fact that he picked up his victims in bars at around the time of the last call. Okay. Gay and lesbian anti-violence projects use the opportunity to publicize the case and pressure the NYPD. So gay men were like routinely being preyed on in bars. You know, they were assaulted. They were often it was like you know people that were conflicted about their own sexuality like a like a manifestation of self-hatred okay and it was in an era as well where gay men were being like blamed for aids so you know they were they were at the it's the, actually so so sad i know it's very sad for the first month nearly 300 people were interviewed the task force had like a small pool of potential suspects the police knew it was going to be a difficult task, and they couldn't really pinpoint a motive. No one had any like obvious enemies or anybody that was angry at them. No, like jealous lovers. You know, th- things that you might sort of point to, like suspects that you might yeah see. Yeah, like there was no links really. Not really. The most promising lead was the white man seen by the two witnesses that the man that had introduced himself to Lisa Hall as either Mark or possibly John. So far, all detectives knew about this guy was that he claimed to be a nurse at St. Vincent's Hospital and had been drinking with Michael and appeared to be the last person seen with him before his death. So the task force subpoenaed St. Vincent for the names and addresses and date of birth. Of all nursing personnel with Mark or John as either their first or middle names. When they realized there was also a St. Vincent's on Staten Island, those records were also requested. There was like no formal announcement of the task force ending, but in late September, leads were exhausted. Like one by one, they the investigators were called away to other cases. This case had like more or less gone cold. What had once seemed like a mountain of clues, a mountain of witnesses and tips, it just sort of trickled and fizzled to nothing. There was also no further murders. So the conclusion that they arrived to was that either their man was locked up, dead, or still out there, but had stopped or taken a break from the killings. But only one of these theories proved to be correct. He was still out there. Years ticked by with no further leads or discoveries in the case of the last call killer. But then in the year 2000, which was seven years after the last homicide, detectives decided to try something new. A new fingerprinting process, VMD or vacuum metal deposition, was a technological advance used in Canada and it was particularly useful for lifting old fingerprints from plastic surfaces. I'm not going to go into detail about how. Frankly, I don't understand it, but it's science. The prints that they had already from the rubbish bags containing the remains of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero lacked like good enough individual characteristics for a good comparison. So they decided to contact the Toronto Police Forensic Identification Services in Canada. They had been using this uh, for a few years and they had assisted in solving cases in the States. So in July 2000, um, nearly seven years after the last known homicide, evidence from the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero were transported to the Canadian labs. So this process would take some time. They eventually got 16 updated fingerprints back um, from the Mulcahy murder and three from the Marrero case. And these prints were of much better quality than the original ones. So they uploaded them to the national database, but... There were no matches. Oh, I'm raging. I'm dying to know. So the, po- the police were frustrated and they sent hard copies to each state since not all states had actually put their copies onto the national database online yet. So when the fingerprints reached Maine State Police Crime Lab, the state of Maine hadn't actually put all their prints onto the base yet. They went through them like individually And they couldn't believe it when they had a match in their records. On the 14th of May, 2001, police had learned that the likely murderer of four men in New York over a three year period who the police had been pursuing for eight years was Richard W. Rogers. By then, Rogers was a 50 year old man that worked as a nurse in Mount Sinai Hospital in New York City. Richard Rogers' fingerprints were on file in Maine from a murder in 1973, which was almost 28 years prior to that. Oh, what? So just to briefly explain that murder, on Tuesday, May 1st, 1973, two cyclists discovered a young male body in a remote area of Old Town um, in Orono and Maine, almost 20 feet from the road, this person was shirtless covered in blood and wrapped in a tent nearby were tire marks which police believed had been left by the car from which he was dumped they found a key and he was identified as frederick Allen spencer a student from the university of maine he had two housemates one of whom was richard rogers he was kind of a quiet kind of odd fella um and the men were just not really close acquaintances. They were housemates. When the police went into Richard Rogers' room, there were blood droplets on the wall and bloody fingerprints on the door near the entrance to the bedroom. And there was also a hammer. Police brought him in and under interrogation, he confessed to killing Fred. Fred. He said that he had come home in the evening and his roommate Fred was rooting through his things, carrying a hammer and came at him with it. Richard and him had fought and struggled and he managed to grab the hammer away from Frederick, hit him over the head. Then waited until night time, wrapped his body in a boy scout tent and then dragged him out of the house into his car, drove him into the woods where he dumped the body. Fred suffered eight blows to the back of the skull and as a further indignity, Rachel, er, Richard had placed a plastic bag over his face. What was not noted was any self-defence wounds yeah, on back, Richard. The back of his skull as well. And so eight, it's like coming from behind. Yeah, Eight wounds. Richard pled not guilty. The charge was reduced to manslaughter and on Monday, October 29th at the trial, he was found not guilty. Guilty. He admitted it as well. He smiled, thanked the judge and the jury and seemed to be the only person in the room not surprised by the verdict. He was um, born in Plymouth, Maine on June 16th, 1950, the eldest of five children, an awkward teenager and remembered as being neat and meticulous. He had a high-pitched voice and was picked on mercilessly in school. In school and in college, he understandably hid his sexuality from his peers. Had he been open about it, his life could have been very different and, and even endangered. He was a nurse in Mount Sinai's uh, surgical intensive care unit. And um, at this time, he was like going about his life, no longer looking over his shoulder or shadowed or worried about press, about those murders, the public's fascination With the murders faded, and he worked for Mount Sinai since June 1979. He was promoted to senior clinical nurse and with the added responsibility came more days off. He was off on May 4th, 1991, the morning after Peter Anderson stumbled out of the Waldorf Astoria. He was also off on May 5th, when Peter's body was found at the rest area. He was off on July 7th, and the night that Thomas McCahey was last seen. He was off on the 9th of July, when Tom's body parts were found. He was off on May 6th, when Anthony Marrero was last seen. And um, in the early morning hours of July 30th, Richard walked into the Five Oaks and was seen leaving with Michael Sicaria and was off that day and the next. Initially police want to place him under surveillance. The question that they wanted answers were, what had he been doing since nineteen ninety-three? Yeah. Who did like why did he stop killing? Who did he associate with? The investigators didn't talk publicly about it at the time, but they believed that he had killed dozens of men. In fact, they assumed that every time he went on holidays, he killed people. At around six, absolutely terrifying. I know. At around 6 p.m. on May 27th, he was arrested and brought in for questioning. So they didn't actually put him under surveillance, which the police were a bit annoyed about. But, uh, you know, ultimately they were told, get this man in. Like, we don't have time for, you know, putting him under surveillance. Yeah. So they're like, look, you're, you know, you're being uh, you're a victim of credit card fraud. That's how they brought him in. The investigators that had been working on the case for 10 years were like, we could have got more information. We could have gathered like evidence, possibly even about other crimes if we'd kept him under surveillance. But the NYPD were like, no, we have to be cautious. He was questioned by detectives. He said that he didn't understand what detectives from New Jersey would want with him. The detectives throw the question back at him. They're like, well, what do you think we want with you? They did then inform him that they were in fact wanting to talk to him about the killing of four gay men between 1991 and 1993. Peter Anderson, Thomas Mulcahy, Anthony Morero, and Michael Sakara. They showed Richard photos of the men and he denied knowing Anthony or Thomas, but he's like, oh yeah, I think I know Michael from Five Oaks Bar. They find him polite, um, you know, just, you know, very easy to interview they inform him that they have indisputable evidence, both physical and circumstantial, that linked him to the homicides. They started with Peter Anderson. Um, when Peter's body was found in Pennsylvania, on the bag there were numerous fingerprints identified as Richard's. Richard nodded, but he doesn't speak. They informed him of the body of Thomas Mulcahy, found in July 1992. Fingerprints were recovered from the bags and were unquestionably Richard's. They informed him that in 1993, in the murder of Anthony Morero, fingerprints found in the bags containing um, Anthony's body were also Richard's. Finally, they moved on to Michael Sakara, whose body was found in July 1993, and he was seen leaving the bar with Michael, uh, a man that fit his description, and he drove off in a light-coloured vehicle. Richard had earlier confirmed in the interview that he had drove a 1991 light grey Toyota Corolla at the time of that homicide. Again, Richard nods, doesn't say anything, doesn't confirm nor deny any of the crimes before saying, do you think I need a lawyer? Oh God, you do, mate. The next day he was charged by Ocean County for the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Morero, and search warrants were executed on his car, his locker at Mount Sinai Hospital and his homes both past and present. His homes were described as immaculate. In his basement they found a bottle of potassium chloride diazepam otherwise known as um, Valium. Several months later, he was extradited to New Jersey, but it would be another four years before a trial began. He was charged with the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero, as well as two uh, points of hindering apprehension on account of the dismemberments. He was not facing the death penalty. That had been ruled out because the review committee determined that the fact that the bodies were cut up does not constitute an aggravating factor because the mutilation occurred after death That is absolutely ridiculous But that's that's not that he's not going to be arrested That's that he won't get the death penalty I know but still And that was according to the Asbury Park Press In October 2005 He was offered a plea If he accepted he would serve no more than 30 years The sentences imposed for the two murders Would run concurrently And he would be eligible for parole After 15 years Like what a light what sentence stupidly he declined to take the plea he was 55 years old and at his age it was a probable life sentence i think he expected an acquittal like i think like he thought like in college he's like i'm getting away with this this is absolutely fine as usual i will be fine like why else would you decline that plea yeah yeah the trial began in october and prospective jurors were queried so obviously in part of their opinion of of homosexuality like if they would have any uh, you know prejudice or biases um they had to be fair and completely this impartial awesome. just friggin so angry and like that, that had to be done but anyway um the jury would only be hearing parts of the story like the killing of uh frederick spencer was off limits so they wouldn't hear about that story of that murder in college However, the judge did allow the prosecutor to bring in evidence of the murders of Peter Anderson and Michael Sakara because their cases um, were not being prosecuted and both actually remain open to this day. Oh, God. Over the next couple of weeks a jury heard testimony from Margaret Mulcahy who was Tom's wife, Cynthia Anderson who was Peter's wife, Carlos Santiago who was a friend of Anthony's, Lisa Hall, the Five Oaks bartender and friend of Michael's and more. Rachel did, or, Richard did not testify on his own behalf his defense was not the dispute of the presence of the fingerprints on his bags but it was argued that they couldn't be certain when they were left so his lawyer is like look there's no proof he committed the murder he just handled the bags In the end, jurors deliberated for only a few hours and when asked by the judge to deliver the verdict on November 10, 2005, Richard Rogers was found guilty of the murders of Thomas Mulcahy and Anthony Marrero. He was sentenced to two consecutive life terms in prison plus 10 years for hindering apprehension quote it's the purpose of this sentence to do everything within my power to assure society that you never walk free again and that you die in some hole in some prison without ever having freedom again and hopefully society will find some modicum of justice in that because there's nothing else i can do we're done get him out of here end quote richard rogers is now serving two consecutive life sentences in new jersey state prison and has never spoken about the murders um the motive like his motive is still kind of a mystery like investigators even now after more than a decade of work they're still they still don't know like it's still an unanswered question Casey Jordan a forensic psychologist she sort of identified that like there are phases almost an evolution to a serial killer she believes that he had experienced a sexual thrill from the castration of his first victim Peter that made him curious then about his you know capabilities so that in turn with his next victim he would you know begin the disarticulation to find out if this gave him the same sexual thrill he's so sick so disgusting and so so weird like there was other things as well in this case that I didn't go into in detail but a man um came forward uh as well that he had went home with Richard Rogers uh previously from a bar and like he woke up with like Richard's hands around his neck he was groggy and then Richard like put a needle into him and like he went to sleep and woke up naked and you know real scary oh God. and then um you know investigators also said that a gay man went missing when he was holidaying in the same place that richard rogers was holidaying so there's a lot more detail that just has never be, you know been proven, proven. so it's terrifying like the those men in new york city those gay men were just being preyed on they were inebriated they were drunk they were lured out and, and then he probably drugged them as well, if you know the exactly. And it's just it's so horrendous to think of what they went through in their last, you know, hours yeah. on earth. Thankfully, Richard Rogers is behind bars and, you know, will never ever get out for what he done to those men and their families. Most of the information for this episode um, I got from a book I read called Last Call A True Story of Love, Lust, and Murder in Queer New York written by elon green thanks for listening to this week's episode of what's a crime we will be back next week with a brand new episode with corny and Gemma. thank you bye